Okay. Yeah. All right. We're going. Um, I don't know where these are going to be, but we're going to try to get them out to y'all in case you want to analyze them, share them, whatever it is you miss a week. Uh, just to reorient us and remember where we are, when you think about Ruth as a four-act play, act number one um, is going to happen on the road from Moab back to Bethlehem. Uh, that we have a family that has been devastated by grief and loss. We have three women traveling together. One woman leaves. Uh, Ruth decides to stick it out with Naomi. And, and remember, one of the things I want to draw out of chapter one is that Naomi looks at Ruth and basically says, uh, I'm kind of a lost cause at this point. You are still capable of living a full life. I want you to leave. Just let me fend for myself. But you go back home, go to your mom and dad, set up your life. And Ruth says, no, where you go, I will go. Uh, where you live, I will live. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Ruth um, essentially throws away whatever possible life she could have had in Boab to stay with Naomi. And it's a beautiful picture of sacrifice. But the thing I want to bring out is that in chapter one, uh, remember, Naomi was essentially trying to protect Ruth at her expense. Ruth flips those tables and protects Naomi at her expense in that both women are trying to sacrifice something to take care of each other. Scene two is in some fields outside of Bethlehem. We, we meet a um, single wealthy landowner named Boaz uh, who sees Ruth, is fully aware of everything that Ruth has done for Naomi. And Boaz winds up understanding the Levitical gleaning laws and goes above and beyond what is required of him to the extent that he is losing money in order to provide for Ruth. Ruth winds up gleaning so much grain and barley out of Boaz's fields uh, that she no longer has to glean, that she has enough to either provide bread for herself, go into the market to provide for her and Naomi. And so we are introduced to this third character uh, who winds up sacrificing in order to take care of both women. Chapter three, uh, we have the famous seduction scene uh, on the threshing room floor, and we have a variety of marriage proposals going on. Uh, and that's the thing that I want to remind everybody of the, the various things that are going on. I taught you three words. We went over Pilagesh, Ama, and Isha. Um, and Naomi seems to be encouraging Ruth uh, to offer herself as a Pilagesh. Ruth in turn says, forget that. I'm going to offer myself as an Ama. Um, Boaz looks at this whole thing and basically offers his own dowry to send back to Naomi, his own uh, proposal. He hasn't quite said what type of proposal it is. But the other thing I want to bring out at the end is Boaz seems invested in protecting Ruth's reputation. You remember how chapter three ends? While it was still dark, he got her up, sent her home with 60 pounds of barley, whatever, uh, because he says to himself, no one can know she was here. And so you have Boaz looking at Ruth, protecting her reputation. You have Boaz sacrificing more of the grain that he had just threshed. Chapter four, um, or sorry, chapter three then ends with Naomi saying, hey, Ruth, just sit tight. Boaz seems to be a man of honor. He'll take care of whatever this business is. Chapter four, scene four of our four-act play. We're reaching the climax of the play. It takes place at the gates of Bethlehem. But I want to remind you of why. Deuteronomy chapter 25, please. Deuteronomy 25. I'm going to remind you of how leveret marriage is supposed to work. I'm going to start in verse 5. If brothers live together and one of them dies without having a son, the dead man's wife should not 
remarry someone outside the family. Instead, her late husband's brother must go to her, marry her, um, and I'm going to say this like my, my text says, perform the duty of a brother-in-law. That exact phrasing comes up in the book of Genesis, which is where we're going next. Uh, the first son that she bears will continue the name of the dead brother, thus preventing his name from being blotted out of Israel. So just so we're all on the same page here. If somebody dies, the woman, if she does not have a son, should not remarry outside the family. Whoever the closest relative is, is supposed to marry her. And whatever son that they have, the first son, is technically, legally, the dead husband's child. Everybody with me? Okay. If he does not want to marry his brother's widow, she must go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He is unwilling to, quote, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the city must summon him and speak to him if he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her. Then his sister-in-law must approach him in view of all the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. She will then respond, Thus may it be done to any man who does not maintain his family or his brother's family line. And his family name will be referred to in Israel as the family of the one whose sandal was removed. I know this seems stupid, but we're going to have some sandals coming off of feet in Ruth chapter 4. That's why it's crucial to understand this. Um, real quick, I do want to show you how seriously God takes this. Genesis chapter 38. Here's a story you forgot was in Scripture. If you know what's in Genesis 38, you know why I said that. Um, hmm. At that time, Judah left his brothers and stayed with an Adullamite man named Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Judah acquired her as a wife, slept with her. She became pregnant and had a son. Judah named him Ur. She became pregnant again, had a second son whom she named Onan. Then she had another son who she named Shelah. She gave birth to him in Kazib. Judah acquired a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord killed him. Verse 8, Judah went to Onan and said, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill the, quote, duty of a brother-in-law so that you may raise up a descendant for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would never be considered his. And Onan knows this not just from a, an emotional perspective. We're talking from a legal perspective. The child is not his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he wasted his emission on the ground so as not to give his brother a descendant. And what Onan did was so evil in the Lord's sight, the Lord killed him too. That's how seriously God takes this lever at marriage thing. Okay? Um, now we can start in Ruth, chapter 4. Yay! So Boaz went to the village gate and sat there. Along came the guardian, the Goel, that Boaz had mentioned to Ruth. And remember, we find out at the end of chapter 3 that Boaz is not the only Goel, and there's someone who's closer. And all of us following the play, we're supposed to say, no, we need Ruth to wind up with Boaz. Now we're going to find out some other guy is going to swoop in in the final act of the play and prevent 
our Romeo and Juliet from combining together? No, we're supposed to be rooting against this guy from the beginning, okay? Boaz said, um, come over here, and what does your text say? How does he address him? Friend. You got friend? John Doe. John Doe. Are you reading the net? Yeah, yeah you are. <laughs> yeah, you are. And here's why. Um, and, and Danny, Danny and Chuck, feel, feel free to jump in here if I butcher this. The Hebrew term is my favorite term in all of Hebrew. It's called Poloni Almoni. Uh, it is the greatest thing. And it literally means <laughs> um, the guy without a name. Okay? So the narrator wants you to dislike this man so much, we're not even going to give him a name. All right, um, which is why I think the net actually translated best. It's not the Hebrew word for friend that's in there. Uh, it's literally the name that we use for someone who doesn't have a name, which is how in English we use the term John Doe. Yes. Um, so my text and I'm in a, a later version of the net. Um, Boaz says, come over here. What's your name? And sit down. <laughs> Fantastic. So this guy doesn't have a name. Okay, things are not looking up for him. However, um, there seems to be a deliberate move on the author's part to emphasize how little we want to care about this guy. We're not even going to name him, right? He's just extra number two in the screenplay. So they sat down and Boaz chose 10 of the village elders and said, sit down over here. So remember Deuteronomy 25, we are at the town gates of Bethlehem. We have the elders. If anything, Boaz fully understands the law and he's going to follow it to a T. And, and that seems to be how chapter four is opening up. Boaz knows there's this other guy who has a legal right to go before him. He knows that in any case, the lever at marriage, I've got to get the elders together at the town gate. So here we are, elders at the town gate, Boaz versus extra number two. Boaz said to the Goel, Naomi, who is returned from the region of Moab, is selling a portion of land that belongs to our brother Elimelech. Um, and it's, it's the word is relative, okay? I don't want to confuse um, how close the relation is. Uh, so I'm legally informing you, acquire it before the elders of my people and those sitting here. If you want to exercise your right to redemption, do it. But if not, tell me so I will know. For you possess the first option of redemption. I am next in line after you. If you remember way back in chapter one or chapter two, whenever we got introduced to the word Goel, I walked you through the economic aspects of redemption, that you can buy slaves, you can buy property in order to support the family. In this case, Boaz seems to be saying, look, Naomi's entitled to this land because it's a Limelex, technically, in the legal register. She's going to sell it to provide for herself. Do you want to buy it? By the way, how was wealth and power measured in the ancient world? Land. Only a fool wouldn't do it. So Goel responds, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, oh, by the way, when you acquire the field from Naomi, you are also legally obligated to acquire Ruth the Moabites. Let's just throw that in there. Um, not just that you get to get married, you get to get married to someone that's going to prevent you from congregating in the assembly of the Lord for the next 10 generations. Yes? You remember that passage? You get Ruth the Moabite too. Because if you're going to step up and be the Goel to get wealth and power and land, 
you got to also step up and be the Goel and marry this woman. And here's why. The wife of our deceased relative, Malan, in order to preserve his name by raising up a descendant to inherit the property. So here's the deal. Legally, you can buy the land, but you got to marry the girl, and whoever your firstborn is, that son, will inherit the land and carry on Malan's name. That's the risk. And look at what the Goel says. He understands the risk, and he says, the, the Goel said, verse 6, Then I am unable to redeem it, for I would ruin my own inheritance in that case. So you may exercise my redemption option, for I am unable to redeem it. Poloni Almoni understands the stakes, and here's, here's where the stakes actually are. He's going to marry Ruth. We don't know anything about the rest of his family. If he and Ruth have a son, that son in all the legal registers, in every legal way imaginable, is Malon's child, no matter how much he is biologically related to Poloni Almoni, from now until time memorial, he is Malon's child. If Poloni Almoni does not have another son, his name gets blotted out from the register of Israel forever. Is everybody with me on this? So we know nothing about his family. The firstborn between him and Ruth would be considered Malon's child. If he never has another son, his family line stops, Malon continues, and Poloni Almoni knows it because he literally says, I will ruin my own inheritance if I do this. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. So apparently he doesn't have a son yet. Um, at the very least, we can surmise that, especially with how Boaz responds to this. Boaz starts chiming in, saying he understands the stakes as well. Let me keep reading. Um, verse 7, and we've gotten aside from the author, which is basically big, bold, neon lights. Hey, flip to Deuteronomy 25. Uh, this used to be the customary way to finalize a transaction involving goels and redemption in Israel. A man would remove his sandal and give it to the other party, and this was a legally binding act in Israel. So the goel said to Boaz, you may acquire it, and he removed his sandal. So now we have fulfilled our obligation to Deuteronomy 25. Here's what Boaz does. Verse 9. So Boaz said to the elders and all the people at the town gates, You are all witnesses that I have acquired from Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite. I'm just going to make sure everybody remembers I understand that this is not a Hebrew woman. I'm acquiring, or I'm acquiring Ruth the Moabite, um, the wife of Malon, as my Isha. All of you should have the word wife here, not servant. So Boaz, remember, Naomi says, go be a Pilagesh. Ruth says, no, I'm going to propose as an Amma. And Boaz says, I'm going to do you one better. And, uh, <laughs> Boaz, Boaz takes her as a, as a if, if I can be so crude, as a first-class wife. This is what Sarah was to Abraham, not Hagar. This is what Rachel and Leah were to Jacob, what Rebecca was to Isaac, the first-class wife that comes with all the legal protections that Deuteronomy and Leviticus have to offer, all of the stature that society at that time offers. And look at what he says. As my wife, 
so I can raise up a descendant who will inherit Malon's property. So the name of the deceased would not disappear from among his relatives and among his village. This is Boaz telling us, I know the risks. I know the risks. I'm marrying this woman so that we can have a son, so that Malon's name will not disappear from all the genealogies. I'm raising up a son so that Malon would be remembered. Ruth and I are going to get married. We're going to have a son so that Malon's inheritance is intact. Boaz is facing the exact same risk as Poloni Almoni. If he never has another son, and I'm going to emphasize this a lot, Boaz's name should be stricken from the genealogy, and it's Malon's name that should be in there. Okay? So Boaz is risking his own memory, his own name, his own inheritance. And he says, whereas Poloni Almoni was not willing to do it, I am, and I understand what I'm getting myself into. You are all witnesses to this. And the people who were at the gate and the elders replied, we are indeed witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your home like Rachel and Leah, two of the most famous Eshahs of Genesis, both of whom built up the house of Israel. May you prosper in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. May your family become like the family of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We read half of that story. You remember the rest? I know you do, Grace Bible Church. She pretends to be a prostitute. Father-in-law sleeps with her and they have a kid named Perez. Yes. Same family. Same family. What are the odds? <laughs> Through the descendants that the Lord gives you by this young woman. Everybody at the town gate knows the sacrifice that Boaz is potentially making. He's charging into the unknown, not understanding how this is going to impact his inheritance, his name, his descendants, his line. All he knows is I'm going to take care of Naomi. I'm going to take care of Ruth. I'm going to make sure Malon is not forgotten. That's what Boaz says, right? And everybody at the, the gate seems to understand this man is potentially sacrificing his life to take care of everybody else around him. By the way, this is really going to matter for how we use the word redeemer in the New Testament, is it not? Not an accident that that word will be used to describe who Jesus is. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well, I, I know, yeah. Okay, because it makes it sound like it, if there was somebody else there, then we don't have to do that. But if it's like there's only one and only yeah. one does it. Right. And Ruth's not there. Right? Ruth isn't at the town gates when Boaz is doing this. But she's also not being denied anything. Correct. Because she's not a part of the family yet. Correct. But she's also a Moabite, so she may not have the right to be spit because she's a <laughs> do you know? Do you know? Danny, do you know? Danny, you know? You're, you're not wrong. You're not wrong, and I don't think Ruth is there. Um, I don't have a good answer for you. All I know is they're sandals. Yeah. Okay, so I know that the 10 generations thing with the Moabite mm -hmm. stuff, but it sounds to me like Ruth has... Uh, rejected her own gods and stuff mm. and has become 
a member of the tribe of mm -hmm. Israel. So does that not make a difference? Can we table that till next week? Okay. Uh, I won't be here job. next week. Uh, because it, it, it does make a difference, but I'm not done with chapter four yet. We can't get there. Okay. Um, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I'm going to have to get back to you on that. And, and also, when we're, when we're in the Gospel of Matthew next week, I think that'll be illuminated. Okay. Um, verses 13 through 17 is like epilogue number one, okay? Um, so we have, we have the marriage, happily ever after. This is like the mid credit scene, not quite the post credit scene. So Boaz married Ruth and slept with her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Yay, Malon! His name's not going to be forgotten. The village women, remember, they're functioning as the chorus in this play, yes? The village women all came to Naomi and said, may the Lord be praised because he has not left you without a goel. Huh. May he become famous in Israel so he will encourage you and provide for you when you are old. For your daughter-in-law who loves you has given him birth. And this is one of my favorite twists in the book. Whoever this narrator is, whoever this author is, Boaz is not Naomi's redeemer. The grandchild is. Look at this. He will encourage you, provide for you when you are old. Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given him birth. She is better to you than seven sons. And Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap. She became his caregiver. And the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, who became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David. Fiend. We'll get to the epilogue in one second. Um, do you remember way back in chapter one, I told you that when the text was describing the death of Malon and Kilion, even though they were grown men, the text deliberately used the word yeled for babies. Naomi lost her babies. At the very end of the story, Pleasant who had gone to bitter, Naomi to Marah, all of a sudden has a yeled again. And that seems to be her coming back into a full life. She has a purpose again. And it's that baby who is going to be her Goel, who's going to redeem her bitterness, her moronness. She's got a family again. She has a purpose again. She's not wondering where her future is going anymore. And Obed becomes her redeemer. I love the way this works because the text seems to be trying to describe a family where everybody is everybody else's goel. I'm going to do whatever it takes to sacrifice for me so that I take care of all of you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to sacrifice for me so I take care of all of you. And at the end, it's a, I'll just say it like I see it, a baby born in Bethlehem that winds up being the true goel. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Let's look at the end. Because we got a big problem. The end is a legal genealogy. And it's got a mistake. These are the descendants of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salma. Salma, the father of Boaz. 
Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. And that's how the book ends. Now, um, didn't we just like maybe five verses ago get reminded that whoever the son is is technically not Boaz's? I mean, look, the narrator, the author of this book reminded you twice. Once when Polonia Almoni is like, dude, no, I can't ruin my inheritance. The second time when Boaz says, I understand the risks and whoever this son is, he's going in Malon's line. The narrator seems to say, hmm, I'm going to still count him as your kid. So now we've got to figure out why. Right? It's, it's a beautiful story. And we've got this epilogue that's going to provide a problem. By the way, this is not the only place that makes the same legal, and I'm going to put it in quotations, mistake, because I'm not sure it's a mistake. Matthew chapter 1 lists Boaz as the father of Obed too. Matthew, by the way, is fully aware of what he's doing because he actually mentions Ruth. He knows the story. So now the question that we're going to tackle next week, and here's your, your big kind of plug, uh, is why? What is it about Boaz? What is it about this story that in a story that is fully aware of Levitical custom, Deuteronomic law, the legal requirements of all this stuff, a story in which the characters keep talking to each other, hey, we understand that this son is not going to be ours, it's going to be his. Why is the author ignoring that and crediting Obed in a different family line? Is everybody following me? Okay. Um, so we're going to put a pause in that, and we're going to ask that question next week, uh, because I think it's crucial for understanding, um, one, the kind of political rhetoric that's going on. Because remember, this story ultimately is about a defense of David's ascendancy to the throne. We know that because David's the last word in the book. And whoever is writing this book, fully aware of who David is, also seems to be fully aware that there's a Moabite somewhere in the bloodline. Yeah? So we've got political stakes. We're also going to have some theological stakes, which I've been alluding to as like heavy-handed as I can. Um, but here's my question for you today, and I'm going to lob this grenade and then scurry off to Arlington. Um, hmm. Would you... Would you risk being forgotten, having, in the words of the text, your name blotted out in order to protect somebody else, in order to provide for somebody else, in order to be a redeemer, a goel for somebody else. Um, and, and this is the sacrifice that the story of Ruth seems to highlight above all the other sacrifices. Boaz is willing to make himself potentially nothing in order to provide for this family. He's willing, to, he's willing to risk all the issues to the inheritance that Polonia Almoni is not. And by the way, I'm not going to make Polonia Almoni a bad man. Like, this is a huge ask. I mean, colossal ask. Boaz says yes. I'm willing to risk having my name blotted out forever so that Ruth and Naomi and Malon and Elimelech are remembered and taken care of. Would you be willing to risk that? 
Would you be willing to do it to protect somebody else? Risk you being forgotten. That's the stakes in chapter four. All right. Any questions before I duck out? <laughs> have fun with that. Um, I. Well, he doesn't have, he's not married, right? It sounds like he's older. He doesn't have any sons anyway, so. So he's going to be forgotten he anyway if he doesn't have any kid, right? And if she gave him a second son, then the mm-hmm. second son would have his name. Right? Correct. So it seems like a calculated risk. And he gets the girl. He, he does. <laughs> and, and he mentions that in chapter three, right? Like you have not sought to marry any of the young men. Yeah, and he says here. Yeah, but I think we also have to allow for the possibility that he could have married somebody else. Well, why didn't he ask then? I mean, the guy's old, he's wealthy, what's the problem? He seems to think this Ruth and Naomi character are worth it. something in her sacrifice. He does. Which makes him all the more willing to sacrifice. I don't think he married anyone else because if it did, then... We don't have it recorded in scripture. Yeah, the lineage where you mentioned both Ruth and Boaz. Yeah. Hey, guys, Danny and Chuck, I'm right about this. Yes, we have no other mention of another wife in scripture for Boaz. Yes? Sorry, this is really loud. Sorry. We have no other mention in scripture of another wife for Boaz. Yes, Ruth is the only one mentioned. All right. Um, I will see you all next week. Uh, We're going to try to wrap this up. So we'll be kind of all over the scriptures next week trying to figure out what's the point of Ruth. And I suppose next week I can tell you what the word Boaz means. All right. Love you all. Bye-bye.